I was so excited to come up here this morning that I almost came up before we took the offering. I've been looking forward to, uh, to being with you this morning and to opening the Word of God with you. This is, uh, the passage has been pressing on my heart all week, and so um, I just uh, pray for the Spirit's enablement to, to help you experience a little bit of what I've experienced this week as we've studied Scriptures together. You know, one of the underreported news stories of the so-called Arab Spring is the, the increasing levels of violence that have um, come upon the citizens of Muslim countries, particularly those who identify themselves with the Christian faith. Countries like Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, the uh, Christian minorities in those countries are rapidly diminishing as hundreds of thousands of people flee from the persecution that is, if not government-sponsored, at least government-tolerated. It is driving them from their ancient homelands. You know, for most of us, the, the topic of persecution is just not something that we want to deal with. We would just as soon pass over it or ignore it. In the West, for generations, we, we've had this sort of Christian heritage in our culture, and one of the byproducts of that has been, unfortunately, kind of a dulling of the sharp edge of our Christian witness. But times have changed. Times have changed. The days of the bubble are over. It has burst. Our nation at large is not favorably inclined to the Christian faith. I greatly suspect that the cost of discipleship will continue to rise. Over the next 10 years, I'm no prophet, but I have a strong persuasion that to name the name of Christ will bring persecution in this country. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. It shouldn't surprise us. Over the many centuries, 20 centuries or so of the church, the followers of Jesus Christ have endured frequent persecutions. Frequent persecutions. In the early centuries, these persecutions were, were initially of localized nature. But they began to increase in ferocity until they became empire-wide. Early in the fourth century, the entire power and weight of the Roman Empire was dedicated to the extermination of those followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Why did Rome persecute the Christians? Simple answer is, is because the Christians would not accommodate themselves 
to the paganism of their day. They were called atheists because they refused or did not worship a a visible God. So they were slandered and called atheists. They were called immoral because they met in secret and practiced what the New Testament called a love feast. They were called unpatriotic because they refused to pledge loyalty to Caesar, instead insisting tenaciously upon the statement that only Jesus is king. When you combine inflammatory myths, blind hatred, government-sanctioned slander, you have a perfect environment for persecution. And that's Matthew chapter 5, and we will be looking at verses 10, 11, and 12. This will complete our series on the Beatitudes. As we've been looking at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, we noted here that there are eight Beatitudes. That is an eight-part description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and the future reward that comes to those who are his disciples. And we have taken the time to look at each one of these descriptors, each one of these beatitudes in some detail. We've done it under a a three-pronged approach, right? We've designated what the description is. We've then sought by the Spirit of God and His Word to evaluate our own lives in, in light of this. And then we've talked about how do we cultivate that which exists in principle that it might flower in our lives. We said over and over again, this is not a description of how one becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is a description of one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that all of these are true at least in principle, at least in seed form. And they need to be cultivated. They need to grow. The roots need to go deep. The stalk needs to flower. We looked this morning at verses 10 and following. Let me read them. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. A little background is in order here. A little background. You'll remember that John the Baptist came preaching to the nation. He was that enigmatic figure that that appeared out of the wilderness, dressed in in a funny garb and and preaching an unrelenting message of repentance to the nation. 
that they might prepare their hearts to receive Messiah. It was an uncompromising message to the nation. And people responded. Matthew tells us back in chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6 that, that Jerusalem and Judea and the district around the Jordan, they were, they were going out to him to be baptized. The crowds were pouring out. But it also tells us that the religious leadership of the nation, the authorities, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, wanted no part of it. They wanted no part of this man's message. Contextually, John has now been arrested, according to chapter 4 and verse 12. John is now in prison. The preaching has ended. The revival, as it were, is over. John has made himself enough enemies, both politically and religiously, that he was put out of the way. He's in prison now. Soon his head will be removed from his shoulders. Jesus now on the mountain, having chosen his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples, is preaching this message to them, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And he makes this interesting statement here in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. It appears that the followers of John have already begun to experience the gathering persecution. It won't be long before the followers of Jesus suffer the same fate. The authorities want no part of this message. Right now, Jesus' popularity is large. It's growing. This is his first Galilean ministry. He's been traveling, according to verse 23, 24, 25, the end of chapter 4. He's been traveling throughout Galilee. He's been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's been performing all kinds of miracles. And his, his popularity is growing among the people. And yet the hostility is also growing among the leadership. There's an increasing rift. In fact, a little later, the Apostle John writes that the Jewish authorities have decided that anyone who, who follows Jesus, that is to confess Jesus as Messiah, shall be put out of the synagogue, John chapter 9 and verse 22. They will be cut off from all that it means to be a part of the nation and its social and religious fabric. The hostility is rising. It's against this background that Jesus makes these incredible statements in Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12. Let's designate it together. What is this characteristic he's talking about? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, he says, verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is no accident, by the way, in, in addressing a description of, of disciples as peacemakers in verse 9, 
And in particular, verse 6, those who are, who are ravenous in their pursuit of righteousness, that, that Jesus now turns to the issue of persecution. It follows. It flows. Those in pursuit of righteousness called to be peacemakers, and we said last time peace can only come when wickedness is put out. It only comes in an environment of reconciliation. Those called to this task are going to make enemies. They're not going to be popular. It puts them on a collision course with the prevailing authorities of the world. The followers of Jesus Christ are those who are living in the present by the values of the future. Mark it down. To be a follower of Christ is to be living in the present by the values of the future, and that puts you on a collision course with the world. Our very reality in the world acts as a rebuke. It is both a silent rebuke in our lifestyle and it is a a vocal rebuke through our speech. We refuse to accommodate the world's ungodly way of thinking, living, and speaking. And that sets us in opposition. It provides a rebuke. The world is unable to change. The world is unwilling to be constantly reminded of their need to change. And so they have only one response to a message of righteousness, to a lifestyle of righteousness, and that's persecution. Snuff it out. The word persecute. It means to to chase, to drive away, to pursue after. The word can have a a positive meaning in the pursuit of a virtue. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1, it talks about the pursuit of love. But the predominant New Testament use of of the Greek word translated here, persecute, speaks of inflicting suffering upon people who hold beliefs contrary to the prevailing establishment. To impose suffering upon people who hold beliefs contrary to the prevailing establishment. To persecute them. Blessed are those, verse 10, who have been Persecuted, who have been chased down, who have been driven away, who are being pursued by the establishment in order to inflict pain on them. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Messiah says. We could summarize verse 10, I think, with this statement. God will welcome into the kingdom those who are in those who in the conflict of life pay the cost of discipleship. God will welcome those into the kingdom who in the conflict of life pay the cost of discipleship. You see discipleship has a price. 
it has a price. The price is persecution. Because this topic is so bound up in what it means to follow Jesus Christ, he goes on to elaborate it for us here in verses 11 and 12. All the other Beatitudes, one verse was enough. Here we have three. Three verses. He goes on to say, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He expands the idea here in verse 10, right? He includes now not just simply the persecution, but but the harassments that come in the form of insults and slander to those who follow Christ. It's interesting here, by the way, in verse 11, he, he changes tenses. What I mean by that is, in the prior verses, he, he speaks in the third person plural, those. Here in verse 11, he changes to a, to a second person plural, you, or if you're from the south, y'all. Y'all. Blessed are y'all when people insult you and persecute you. Why does he do that? He does it, I think, because he wants to drive down the fact that this is not just something that happens to a few people. But this is to, to be the present reality of those who call upon him as their master. Notice here, verse 11, by the way, that he says the source of the, of the personal suffering is specifically because of their allegiance to Jesus. You see it at the end of verse 11? Because of me. Notice verse 10. They're suffering because of what? Righteousness. He equates the two. To suffer because of righteousness is to suffer because of Jesus. To suffer because of Jesus is to suffer because of righteousness. They go hand in hand. The life of the follower of Jesus is a life of righteousness that brings suffering and persecution. Blessed are you when, or perhaps better translated, whenever people insult you and persecute you. Whenever it happens, the idea being here that that it will be something that will be regular. We will regularly be opposed. We will regularly be slandered or, or ridiculed. All kinds, you see it, all kinds of evil they will slander you with, falsely say against you. My friends, we should expect it, the New Testament says. It shouldn't surprise us when it comes. It should be something we are prepared for, something we expect. 1 Peter chapter 4. Turn over there. 1 Peter 4. Verse 12. Peter is writing 
to believers who have been scattered. Chapter 1, verse 1. Scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. These believers are being persecuted. It's fascinating the way Peter speaks to exhort and encourage and instruct them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Do not be surprised, he says, when the world responds to you with hostility. But to the degree, verse 13, that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't be shocked. Do not be shocked when at work, your co-workers or your supervisor responds to you with hostility. It shouldn't surprise you at all. In fact, what should surprise you is if they don't. If they don't. According to the New Testament, persecution is a way of life for the follower of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said earlier, we have lived in a bubble There has been a period of time in this country when persecution was very limited. The church itself, as I said, growing somewhat dull in the sharp edge of the gospel, has figured out a way to fit in. Partially because they have aligned their goals with the goals of society at large. The bubble's over. The battle lines are being drawn. We soon will experience what the saints of old have experienced. Persecution. It's a way of life. Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. It was a way of life for the apostles. Having been called before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish leadership, because of their persistent refusal to keep quiet about the resurrection of Jesus, they want to execute them, but, but one Pharisee, verse 34, by the name of Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, said, hey, hang on for a minute. If this thing is just a man-made event, it's going to go away on its own. But if it's not, you could be found fighting against God. And so, verse 40, they took his advice. They didn't kill them. But after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. They beat them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. Check it out rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. 
Well, that was an effective way to shut them up, right? Let's haul them in here. Let's threaten them. Let's beat them. And let's kick them out. It didn't slow them down a bit. I'd suggest you it invigorated them. It invigorated their preaching. Paul, as, as Bernie read for us earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he makes that incredible statement, a, a haunting statement, really. Chapter 3, verse 12. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. Count on it. Hebrews chapter 10. The Jewish believers there, located, I believe, near Jerusalem, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. The author here of the book is is reminding them because right now they're in danger of wilting. They're in danger of pulling back. they're They're in danger of forgetting that truth about Christ that they had first embraced. So he calls this to their mind, verse 32, chapter 10. But remember the former days. When, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that, you, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. He says, When you first started, you were willing to give it all up for Christ. You were willing to allow your property to be seized. You identified yourselves with those who were being openly slandered and persecuted. Now you're backing away. You're saying, I'm not so sure. He says, come back. Come back to your original confession. Remember. Your inheritance doesn't lie here in earth. Your inheritance is in glory. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ 
will be put to shame. We love verse 15, right? That's our apologetic mandate. But notice it comes in a context of persecution. When you are slandered, when you are reviled, when you are intimidated, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within you. Be ready. There's an interesting little passage in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, talking about persecution. Paul says here that, that persecution is a sign of God's election unto salvation. It's a sign that we're a Christian. Philippians 1 verse 27 only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake." experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. That is really interesting counsel from the Apostle Paul to a group of believers who are suffering persecution. He says, rejoice in it. It is the sign of your election. Notice, by the way, that virtually every passage I read on persecution included the concept of joy. Did you notice that? Rejoice. Be glad in your persecutions. Now, that's strange. I mean, persecution is is universally regarded as evil, except, I suppose, by the people who are doing the persecuting, right? Right? Persecution is, is a universally regarded evil. And so it's, it's shocking. It's shocking to be told where to rejoice in it. Go back to Matthew 5. I want you to look at verse 12. Listen, blessed are you when, when people slander you, people insult you, people persecute you because of your commitment to Jesus Christ, your righteous lifestyle. Look at what he says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Now that word, be glad, that is an interesting word. Literally it means to, to leap with unrestrained gladness. Jump up in the air and click your heels. Is what it means. When you were slandered, when you were insulted, when you were chased down, like a wild animal, rejoice and click your heels. Why? Why in the world would anyone exhibit such a behavior that is so contrary to what would be natural? He doesn't say hide. He doesn't say run away. 
He doesn't say fight back. He says, click your heels, jump up and down, and rejoice. Reason, verse 12. There's a twofold reason given here. For, you see it? For, reason, because, because your reward in heaven is great. Number one. Click your heels, jump up and down, rejoice in this reality. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. Persecution brings future heavenly reward, first reason. Now, this is not the reward of heaven. This is a reward in heaven. This is a reward in heaven. For your reward in heaven is great. You will make heaven, but that's not all. There's a reward set aside for you. Followers of Jesus Christ live today by the principles of the future. Hey, can I let you in on a secret? It's kind of a secret here about God. God doesn't balance the books at the end of every day. Did you know that? He doesn't tally the ledger sheet at the end of every day. He doesn't equal out the accounts at the end of every day. He tallies the books in his good timing. And what he calls upon us to do as his children is to walk by faith in the circumstances of life, even though it seems like life is really out of balance. I mean, why would I rejoice in persecution and slanders and insults and attacks on my person and character in this life? It's because I believe the Word of God, that this life is not all there is, and that He will tally it at the end. He's promised me here a great reward, a great reward. What I lose in this life will be more than made up in the next. That's the promise. Now, my friends, that is hard to believe, isn't it? Now, let's be honest. We live in a very comfortable lifestyle. This life is not that bad. It's hard for us to identify with what he's saying here. Life is comfortable. Life is good. And he's saying it's nothing. Count it loss. The reward in heaven is great. No matter what happens to you, the reward in heaven is greater. Secondly, he says, verse 12, click up your heels in the midst of persecution because it puts you in the lofty company of God's chosen spokesman. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reward in heaven is greater than the loss suffered in this life, and to suffer in this life puts you in rarefied company. The prophets of God. Second Chronicles chapter 36 and, and verse 16, the chronicler is recounting the reason for the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And he says this, he says, they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people till there was no remedy. The nation despised its own prophets. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 and 37 The writer says this, he talks about the prophets here. He says they experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. These are the spokesmen for God, right? These These are his ambassadors. Persecuted because of their faithfulness to God. God says here, Jesus says here, when you're persecuted because you're following me, you are in the same distinguished company as the prophets of old who followed God. By the way, that's an implicit statement where Jesus claims to be God. He says, the same blessing for following me will come to, to, to you as came to the prophets who were the spokesmen of God. He's making a veiled but implicit claim of deity. Time to evaluate. Time to evaluate. Where do you stand? Now, truth is, when most of us are tempted, we are tempted, rather, when we face opposition, here's the temptation. The temptation is to veil those things about our Christian life that are bringing on the persecution. That is our temptation. So I want to, I want to share with you four ways how you can escape persecution. Okay? Four ways to escape persecution. Here they are, number one, appropriate the world's standards. The first way you may escape persecution is to appropriate the world's standards. Our nation has plunged headlong into the quicksand of tolerance. It's now the supreme and reigning virtue that trumps all others, including truth, in this culture. This Passion for tolerance prevents us as a culture from distinguishing between right and wrong, good and evil, moral and immoral. We can't make the distinction anymore. We've combined this crazed notion with a, with a tolerance, for tolerance with a, with a driving passion for personal autonomy. Personal autonomy. 
And it exhibits itself in, in rebellion against authority. Opposition to gender differentiation. And unrestrained sexual experimentation. This is our world. Add to the mix uh, the need to anesthetize the soul through mind-numbing intake of audio-video stimulus. The relentless pursuit of material success, right? That's a pretty good overview of how our world approaches life. This is its standards. So here you go. You want to avoid, if you want to avoid persecution, then, then we build our lives on these standards. So to the extent that you build your life on these kinds of standards, you will avoid persecution. Second way to avoid persecution is to approve the world's righteousness. So appropriate its standards and approve its righteousness. So here's the key. The key here is to to refrain from speaking out in opposition to the world's standards. Just don't say anything. I mean, after all, we don't want to be accused of being judgmental, right? So let's not say anything. I mean, even if we don't necessarily fully embrace all of those standards, we can at least adopt the policy of, of kind of go along to get along, right? Don't rock the boat. So whatever you do, do not call attention to yourself and your differing beliefs. Don't do that. It will help you avoid persecution. Can't help but think of uh, a guy by the name of Tim Tebow. Now, I don't care what you think about him as a professional athlete. He's an NFL quarterback, right? You, you can think what you like about that. But I'll tell you what. The vitriolic hatred that has come to that man far exceeds anything he has done or not done as a professional football player. It finds its, its root in this man's lifestyle. That's the way he conducts himself on and off the field. It has brought upon him unbelievable, hateful comments. Attempts by other football players to injure him. Mock him. Why? Because he says publicly that he's a virgin. That he professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is vocal in his opposition to abortion. That he gives of his money and his time in the pursuit of Christian missionary endeavors. That he visits hospitals where kids are are dying of terrible diseases. That he prays, he has the audacity to pray openly and frequently on and off the football field. They hate him. So don't do that. Don't do that kind of stuff and you will avoid persecution. So appropriate the world's standards, approve the world's righteousness. Three, accept the world's ethics. Accept the world's ethics. Now, a a large part of our world's ethics, I I think, can be summarized as follows. So I just jot down a few things. This sort of summarizes the world's ethics. Here we go. 
marriage. Marriage is based on a feeling of love. And when the feeling dies, the marriage is dissolved. I mean, it would be unethical, wouldn't it, to require someone to remain in a loveless marriage? That's unethical. So when you don't feel you're in love anymore, to get divorced. There's another one, two-parent homes, right? Two-parent home consisting of a, of a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman that is repressive and unnecessary for the raising of children. There's another one for you, a woman's body. A woman's body is, is hers to use as ever, however she desires. It's her right. I, I mean, if pregnancy results because of her decisions, then, then she alone has the authority to decide whether or not the baby within her womb lives or dies. It's her right. There's another one for you. Humanity. Humanity is either the, the, either the product of time and chance... Or it's, it's the sharer of the ancient life force that inhabits all of creation. It's either secular humanism or it's neo-paganism. It's either time and chance or, or we all share in the ancient life force. Either way, humans, animals, and plants are of equal value and deserve equal and universal rights. It's the ethics of our world. Oh, how about this one? The scientific ability to do something provides the moral justification to do it. The scientific ability provides the moral justification. If we can, we should, we must. What is the consequence? It's this. Medical procedures are bounded now only by technology. That's the reigning ethic. What are the boundaries on medical procedures? Can we do it? That's our ethical boundary. Here's one more for you. Feelings of nationalism or religious affiliation are the cause of the world's conflicts. Therefore, what we need is an international body of enlightened bureaucrats who can establish planetary laws and then enforce them for the benefit of mankind. That's the world's ethic. So, here you go. All you have to do is accept these ethical positions and you can assure yourself a peaceful life. Just buy in. The sad thing is, my friends, the church has bought in. The church has bought in. Appropriate the world's standards, approve the world's righteousness, accept the world's ethics, fourth, and finally, acquiesce to the world's gods. Acquiesce to the world's gods. This one's easy. Just keep quiet about the gospel. Simple. Just keep your mouth shut. Pretend that all religions basically teach the same thing, right? Many ways to God. You got your religion, I got my religion, end of the conversation. Whatever you do, do not do what the early Christians did, which insisted, they insisted upon the statement that Jesus is Lord. Do not do that. When you do that, you will put yourself on a collision course. 
If you insist upon the necessity and the priority of the lordship of the Jesus Christ, that is an exceedingly bad taste. It's bad taste socially, it, it offends people, and it draws out their wrath. So there you have it. It's very simple. Okay? You want to avoid persecution? Just live like that. Designate, evaluate, cultivate, cultivate. Listen, you know I was being sarcastic, wasn't I? So it gets hard. I mean, if persecution is part of what it means to follow Christ... And that means we, 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 our lives put us on this path. There's a collision coming. If you, if you haven't had one yet, it's coming. It's coming. And, and as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we can't run from it. Now, we shouldn't be seeking it. We don't have to go out of our way in order to have people hate us. But you don't have to. See, all you have to do is live for Christ. And everything else sort of takes care of itself. So how do we, how do we cultivate a life for Christ that will inevitably cause collision? I'm going to go through it quickly here. I've got eight things really quick. Bing, bing, bing. They'll be on the screen. Okay? Or if you'd like... If you email the church office, they will put you on a sermon note distribution list. You can have exactly the same thing I take into the pulpit every week. Delivered to your email box. How's that? Just promise me you, if you're going to reuse it somewhere else, that you don't change it. Okay? Other than that, you can have it. So here they are, eight of them, really quick. Number one, do not participate in work conversations that revolve around crude humor, weekend parties, or office gossip. Now, I didn't mention sports, because if I had mentioned that, you'd have had nothing to talk about. But, <laughs> but this, is, this is, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? This is what the conversations revolve around. Crude humor. Weekend parties and office gossip. So refrain, refuse, do not participate, turn on your heels and walk away. You don't have to say anything, just don't participate. Your silence will be deafening. Second, be scrupulously honest in your business and personal dealings. Refuse to cut corners or fudge the truth. Scrupulously honest, you will stand out. Three, regularly and deeply wash your mind with the Scriptures, which will change how you see and value this world and the next. Right? There's, a, there's an investment strategy going on here. Jesus says that persecution in this life is more than made up for in the reward that comes in the life to come. That's an investment strategy. The only way we can, can understand that kind of math is when we wash our heart and mind in the Word of God. Four, 
insists that only the triune God of Scripture is real and that all the others are fakes. The only God is the true God, and the true God is a triune God. All other pretenders are fakes. Five, call sin, sin, in both your own life and in other people's lives, and then, and then warn of the consequences of those who die in their sins. We're really good about redefining sin with all these lesser words. I was talking about this with somebody the other day. We don't say that we got angry, which is a biblical term. We say we got irritated. Okay? No, you didn't get irritated. You got angry. You got angry. Okay? Call sin, sin. Six. Insist that there is only one way to be saved from our sins, and that is through faith in the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to do it. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's a party killer. Okay? That just really does it. Seven, raise your children to know and embrace this truth. You will have family members guaranteed that will be unhappy with you. Eight, order your priorities, that is your finances, your time commitments, your educational and your vocational pursuits to reflect your belief that life is fleeting and that the kingdom of God is real and could come at any moment. That will make you stand out in the world. Order your priorities. Have the gospel change the way you value, the way you, the way you account in this life. It will change. Simple. But hard. Requires dependence upon the Spirit of God, doesn't it? Requires dependence on the Spirit of God. We begin to think differently. We exercise our faith. Not just in a vague, general way, right? But in a real nuts and bolts, Monday morning kind of way. When you walk into the office or you, you show up at, at school and there before work starts or class starts, there's a few people standing around and, and there you know what they're talking about. And you don't join in and you have to stand all by yourself. It's hard. It's hard. Listen, Jesus said that persecution, insults, and slander go hand in hand with what it means to be a disciple. So let's ask this question, right? Here's the question. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing? You're a follower of Christ. By faith in the resurrected Lord, right? God has saved you. Not on basis of what you have done, but what he has done in Christ. Call out to him. Call out to him to, to help us, to help you. To live for his glory.
Let's pray. Our Father, we are weak people. We are people who are self-indulged. We are people who are soft. We are people who can sing about the battle, and yet we find it so hard to engage. Oh Lord, we are so dependent upon your grace day to day to live the Christian life. And Father, we, we just call on you right now to help us. Every one of us, we have an area in our lives that, that comes readily to our mind, probably been flowing through our minds in the last hour, in which we know we need your grace. May you help us you help us, O oh Lord. Now, Father, I can't also help but think of the persecuted church around the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering even now. Sometimes unspeakable horrors, but, but Lord, if not that, then certainly the insults and the slanders. Oh, Lord, may you strengthen them. May you help them to to remember the gospel, to do the math, and to be willing to follow you in this life that they might live with you in the next. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. I was so excited to come up here this morning that I almost came up before we took the offering. I've been looking forward to, uh, to being with you this morning and to opening the Word of God with you. This is, uh, the passage has been pressing on my heart all week, and so um, I just uh, pray for the Spirit's enablement to, to help you experience a little bit of what I've experienced this week as we've studied Scriptures together. You know, one of the underreported news stories of the so-called Arab Spring is the, the increasing levels of violence that have um, come upon the citizens of Muslim countries, particularly those who identify themselves with the Christian faith. Countries like Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, the uh, Christian minorities in those countries are rapidly diminishing as hundreds of thousands of people flee from the persecution that is, if not government-sponsored, at least government-tolerated. It is driving them from their ancient homelands. You know, for most of us, the, the topic of 
persecution is just not something that we want to deal with. We would just as soon pass over it or ignore it. In the West, for generations, we, we've had this sort of Christian heritage in our culture, and one of the byproducts of that has been unfortunately kind of a dulling of the sharp edge of our Christian witness. But times have changed. Times have changed. The days of the bubble are over. It has burst. Our nation at large is not favorably inclined to the Christian faith. I greatly suspect that the cost of discipleship will continue to rise. Over the next 10 years, I'm no prophet, but I have a strong persuasion that to name the name of Christ will bring persecution in this country. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. It shouldn't surprise us. Over the many centuries, 20 centuries or so of the church, the followers of Jesus Christ have endured frequent persecutions. Frequent persecutions. In the early centuries, these persecutions were were initially of localized nature. But they began to increase in ferocity until they became empire-wide. Early in the fourth century, the entire power and weight of the Roman Empire was dedicated to the extermination of those followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Why did Rome persecute the Christians? Simple answer is, is because the Christians would not accommodate themselves to the paganism of their day. They were called atheists because they refused or did not worship a, a visible God. And so they were slandered and called atheists. They were called immoral because they met in secret and practiced what the New Testament called a love feast. They were called unpatriotic because they refused to pledge loyalty to Caesar, instead insisting tenaciously upon the statement that only Jesus is king. When you combine inflammatory myths, blind hatred, government-sanctioned slander, you have a perfect environment for persecution. And that's Matthew chapter 5, and we will be looking at verses 10, 11, and 12. This will complete our series on the Beatitudes. As we've been looking at 
Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, we noted here that there are eight Beatitudes. That is an eight-part description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and the future reward that comes to those who are his disciples. And we have taken the time to look at each one of these descriptors, each one of these beatitudes in some detail. We've done it under a a three-pronged approach, right? We've designated what the description is. We've then sought by the Spirit of God and His Word to evaluate our own lives in, in light of this. And then we've talked about how do we cultivate that which exists in principle so that it might flower in our lives. We said over and over again, this is not a description of how one becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is a description of one who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that all of these are true at least in principle, at least in seed form. And they need to be cultivated. They need to grow. The roots need to go deep. The stalk needs to flower. We looked this morning at verses 10 and following. Let me read them. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. A little background is in order here. A little background. You'll remember that John the Baptist came preaching to the nation. He was that enigmatic figure that that appeared out of the wilderness, dressed in in a funny garb and and preaching an unrelenting message of repentance to the nation, that they might prepare their hearts to receive Messiah. It was an uncompromising message to the nation, and people responded. Matthew tells us back in chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6 that, that Jerusalem and Judea and the district around the Jordan, they were, they were going out to him to be baptized. The crowds were pouring out. But it also tells us that the religious leadership of the nation, the authorities, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, wanted no part of it. They wanted no part of this man's message. Contextually, John has now been arrested, according to chapter 4 and verse 12. John is now in prison. The preaching has ended. The revival, as it were, is over. John has made himself enough enemies, both politically and religiously, that he was put out of the way. He's in prison now. Soon his head will be removed from his shoulders. 
Jesus now on the mountain, having chosen his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples, is preaching this message to them, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And he makes this interesting statement here in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. It appears that the followers of John have already begun to experience the gathering persecution. It won't be long before the followers of Jesus suffer the same fate. The authorities want no part of this message. Right now, Jesus' popularity is large. It's growing. This is his first Galilean ministry. He's been traveling, according to verse uh, 23, 24, 25, at the end of chapter 4. He's been traveling throughout Galilee. He's been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's been performing all kinds of miracles. And his, his popularity is growing among the people. And yet the hostility is also growing among the leadership. There's an increasing rift. In fact, a little later, the Apostle John writes that the Jewish authorities have decided that anyone who who follows Jesus, that is to confess Jesus as Messiah, shall be put out of the synagogue, John chapter 9 and verse 22. They will be cut off from all that it means to be a part of the nation and its social and religious fabric. Hostility is rising. It's against this background that Jesus makes these incredible statements in Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12. Let's designate it together. What is this characteristic he's talking about? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, he says, verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is no accident, by the way, in in addressing a description of of disciples as peacemakers in verse 9, and in particular, verse 6, those who are are ravenous in their pursuit of righteousness, that, that Jesus now turns to the issue of persecution. It follows. It flows. Those in pursuit of righteousness called to be peacemakers, and we said last time, peace can only come when wickedness is put out. It only comes in an environment of reconciliation. Those called to this task are going to make enemies. They're not going to be popular. It puts them on a collision course with the prevailing authorities of the world. The followers of Jesus Christ are those who are living in the present by the values of the future. Mark it down. To be a follower of Christ is to be living in the present by the values of the future, and that puts you on a collision course with the world. Our very reality in the world acts as a rebuke. It is both a silent rebuke in our lifestyle and it is a a vocal rebuke through our speech. 
We refuse to accommodate the world's ungodly way of thinking, living, and speaking. And that sets us in opposition. It provides a rebuke. The world is unable to change. The world is unwilling to be constantly reminded of their need to change. And so they have only one response to a message of righteousness, to a lifestyle of righteousness, and that's persecution. Snuff it out. The word persecute, it means to to chase, to drive away, to pursue after. The word can have a, a positive meaning, the pursuit of a virtue, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1, it talks about the pursuit of love. But the predominant New Testament use of the, of the Greek word translated here, persecute, speaks of inflicting suffering upon people who hold beliefs contrary to the prevailing establishment. To impose suffering upon people who hold beliefs contrary to the prevailing establishment. To persecute them. Blessed are those, verse 10, who have been persecuted, who have been chased down, who have been driven away, who are being pursued by the establishment in order to inflict pain on them. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Messiah says. We could summarize verse 10, I think, with this statement. God will welcome into the kingdom those who, are in, those who in the conflict of life pay the cost of discipleship. God will welcome those into the kingdom who in the conflict of life pay the cost of discipleship. You see, discipleship has a price. It has a price. The price is persecution. Because this topic is so bound up in what it means to follow Jesus Christ, he goes on to elaborate it for us here in verses 11 and 12. All the other Beatitudes, one verse was enough. Here we have three. Three verses. He goes on to say, Blessed are you, When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He expands the idea here in verse 10, right? He includes now not just simply the persecution, but but the harassments that come in the form of insults and slander to those who follow Christ. It's interesting here, by the way, in verse 11, he he changes tenses. What I mean by that is in the prior verses, he, he speaks in the third person plural, those. Here in verse 11... He changes to a to a second person plural, you, or if you're from the south, y'all. Y'all. Blessed are y'all. When people insult you and persecute you. 
Why does he do that? He does it, I think, because he wants to drive down the fact that this is not just something that happens to a few people. But this is to to be the present reality of those who call upon him as their master. Notice here, verse 11, by the way, that he says the source of the, of the personal suffering is specifically because of their allegiance to Jesus. You see it at the end of verse 11? Because of me. Notice verse 10. They're suffering because of what? Righteousness. He equates the two. To suffer because of righteousness is to suffer because of Jesus. To suffer because of Jesus is to suffer because of righteousness. They go hand in hand. The life of the follower of Jesus is a life of righteousness that brings suffering and persecution. Blessed are you when, or perhaps better translated, whenever People insult you and persecute you whenever it happens. The idea being here that that it will be something that will be regular. We will regularly be opposed. We will regularly be slandered or, or ridiculed. All kinds, you see it, all kinds of evil they will slander you with, falsely say against you. My friends, we should expect it, the New Testament says. It shouldn't surprise us when it comes. It should be something we are prepared for, something we expect. First Peter chapter 4. Turn over there. First Peter 4. Verse 12. Peter is writing to believers who have been scattered, chapter 1, verse 1, scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. These believers are being persecuted. It's fascinating the way Peter speaks to exhort and encourage and instruct them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Do not be surprised, he says, when the world responds to you with hostility. But to the degree, verse 13, that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't be shocked. Do not be shocked when at work your co workers or your supervisor responds to you with hostility. It shouldn't surprise you at all. In fact, what should surprise you is if they don't. If they don't. According to the New Testament, persecution is a way of life. 
for the follower of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said earlier, we have lived in a bubble. There has been a period of time in this country when persecution was a very limited. The church itself, as I said, growing somewhat dull in the sharp edge of the gospel, has figured out a way to fit in. Partially because they have aligned their goals with the goals of society at large. The bubble's over. The battle lines are being drawn. We soon will experience what the saints of old have experienced. Persecution. It's a way of life. Acts chapter 5. And verse 40, it was a way of life for the apostles. Having been called before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish leadership, because of their persistent refusal to keep quiet about the resurrection of Jesus... They want to execute them, but, but one Pharisee, verse 34, by the name of Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, said, hey, hang on for a minute. If this thing is just a man-made event, it's going to go away on its own. But if it's not, you could be found fighting against God. And so, verse 40, they took his advice. They didn't kill them. But after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. They beat them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. Check it out. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Well, that was an effective way to shut them up, Right? Let's them in here, let's threaten them, let's beat them, and let's kick them out. It didn't slow them down a bit. I'd suggest you it invigorated them. It invigorated their preaching. Paul, as, as Bernie read for us earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he makes that incredible statement a a haunting statement, really. Chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. Count on it. Hebrews chapter 10 The Jewish believers there, located, I believe, near Jerusalem. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. The author here of the book is is reminding them because right now they're in danger of wilting. They're in danger of pulling back. they're They're in danger of forgetting that truth about Christ that they had first embraced. 
So he calls this to their mind, verse 32, chapter 10. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that, you, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. He says, when you first started, you were willing to give it all up for Christ. You were willing to allow your property to be seized. You identified yourselves with those who were being openly slandered and persecuted. Now you're backing away. You're saying, I'm not so sure. He says, come back. Come back to your original confession. Remember that your inheritance doesn't lie here in earth. Your inheritance is in glory. First Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks of you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We love verse 15, right? That's our apologetic mandate. But notice it comes in a context of persecution. When you are slandered, when you are reviled, when you are intimidated, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within you. Be ready. There's an interesting little passage in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, talking about persecution. Paul says here that, that persecution is a sign of God's election unto salvation. It's a sign that we're a Christian. Philippians 1 verse 27 Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. 
For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. That is really interesting counsel from the Apostle Paul to a group of believers who are suffering persecution. He says, rejoice in it. It is the sign of your election. Notice, by the way, that virtually every passage I read on persecution included the concept of joy. Did you notice that? Rejoice. Be glad in your persecutions. Now, that's strange. I mean, persecution is, is universally regarded as evil. Except, I suppose, by the people who are doing the persecuting, right? But persecution is, is a universally regarded evil. And so it's, it's shocking. It's shocking to be told where to rejoice in it. Go back to Matthew 5. I want you to look at verse 12. Listen, blessed are you when, when people slander you, people insult you, People persecute you because of your commitment to Jesus Christ, your righteous lifestyle. Look at what he says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Now that word, be glad, that is an interesting word. Literally it means to to leap with unrestrained gladness. Jump up in the air and click your heels. Is what it means. When you were slandered, when you were insulted, when you were chased down like a wild animal, rejoice and click your heels. Why? Why in the world would anyone exhibit such a behavior that is so contrary So what would be natural? He doesn't say hide. He doesn't say run away. He doesn't say fight back. He says, click your heels. Jump up and down and rejoice. Reason, verse 12. There's a twofold reason given here. Four, you see it? For reason, because, because your reward in heaven is great, number one. Click your heels, jump up and down, rejoice in this reality. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. Persecution brings future heavenly reward, first reason. Now, this is not the reward of heaven. This is a reward in heaven. This is a reward in heaven. For your reward in heaven is great. You will make heaven, but that's not all. There's a reward set aside for you. 
Followers of Jesus Christ live today by the principles of the future. Hey, can I let you in on a secret? It's kind of a secret here about God. God doesn't balance the books at the end of every day. Did you know that? He doesn't tally the ledger sheet at the end of every day. He doesn't equal out the accounts at the end of every day. He tallies the books in his good timing. And what he calls upon us to do as his children is to walk by faith in the circumstances of life, even though it seems like life is really out of balance. I mean, why would I rejoice in persecution and slanders and insults and attacks on my person and character in this life? It's because I believe the Word of God. That this life is not all there is, and that He will tally it at the end. He's promised me here a great reward. A great reward. What I lose in this life will be more than made up in the next. That's the promise. Now, my friends, that is hard to believe, isn't it? Now, let's be honest. We live in a very comfortable lifestyle. This life is not that bad. It's hard for us to identify with what he's saying here. Life is comfortable. Life is good. And he's saying, it's nothing. Count it loss. The reward in heaven is great. No matter what happens to you, the reward in heaven is greater. Secondly, he says, verse 12, click up your heels in the midst of persecution because it puts you in the lofty company of God's chosen spokesman. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reward in heaven is greater than the loss suffered in this life, and to suffer in this life puts you in rarefied company. The prophets of God. Second Chronicles chapter 36 and, and verse 16, the chronicler is recounting the reason for the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And he says this, he says, They mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people till there was no remedy. The nation despised its own prophets. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 and 37 The writer says this. He talks about the prophets here. He says they experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. 
These are the spokesmen for God, right? These are, these are his ambassadors. Persecuted because of their faithfulness to God. God says here, Jesus says here, when you're persecuted because you're following me, you are in the same distinguished company as the prophets of old who followed God. By the way, that's an implicit statement where Jesus claims to be God. He says the same blessing for following me will come to, to, to you as came to the prophets who are the spokesmen of God. He's making a veiled but implicit claim of deity. Time to evaluate. Time to evaluate. Where do you stand? Now, truth is, when most of us are tempted, we are tempted, rather, when we face opposition, here's the temptation. The temptation is to veil those things about our Christian life that are bringing on the persecution. That is our temptation. So I want, to, I want to share with you four ways how you can escape persecution. Okay? Four ways to escape persecution. Here they are. Number one, appropriate the world's standards. The first way you may escape persecution is to appropriate the world's standards. Our nation has plunged headlong into the quicksand of tolerance. It's now the supreme and reigning virtue that trumps all others, including truth, in this culture. This passion for tolerance prevents us as a culture from distinguishing between right and wrong, good and evil, moral and immoral. We can't make the distinction anymore. We've combined this crazed notion with a, with a tolerance, for tolerance with a, with a driving passion for personal autonomy. Personal autonomy. And it exhibits itself in, in rebellion against authority, opposition to gender differentiation, and unrestrained sexual experimentation. This is our world. Add to the mix the the need to anesthetize the soul through mind-numbing intake of audio-video stimulus. The relentless pursuit of material success, right? That's a pretty good overview of how our world approaches life. This is its standards. So here you go. You want to avoid, if you want to avoid persecution, then, then we build our lives on these standards, So to the extent that you build your life on these kinds of standards, you will avoid persecution. Second way to avoid persecution is to approve the world's righteousness. So appropriate its standards and approve its righteousness. So here's the key. The key here is to to refrain from speaking out in opposition to the world's standards. Just don't say anything. I mean, after all, we don't want to be accused of being judgmental, right? 
So let's not say anything. I mean, even if we don't necessarily fully embrace all of those standards, we can at least adopt the policy of, of kind of go along to get along. Right? Don't rock the boat. So whatever you do, do not call attention to yourself and your differing beliefs. Don't do that. It will help you avoid persecution. Can't help but think of uh, a guy by the name of Tim Tebow. Now, I don't care what you think about him as a professional athlete. He's an NFL quarterback, right? You, you can think what you like about that. But I'll tell you what, the vitriolic hatred that has come to that man far exceeds anything he has done or not done as a professional football player. It finds its, its root in this man's lifestyle. That's the way he conducts himself on and off the field. It has brought upon him un. Believable, hateful comments, attempts by other football players to injure him, mock him. Why? Because he says publicly that he's a virgin, that he professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is vocal in his opposition to abortion that he gives of his money and his time in the pursuit of Christian missionary endeavors, that he visits hospitals where kids are, are dying of terrible diseases, that he prays, he has the audacity to pray openly and frequently on and off the football field. They hate him. So don't do that. Don't do that kind of stuff and you will avoid persecution. So appropriate the world's standards, approve the world's righteousness. Three, accept the world's ethics. Accept the world's ethics. Now, a, a large part of our world's ethics, I, I think, can be summarized as follows. So I just jot down a few things. This sort of summarizes the world's ethics. Here we go. Marriage. Marriage is based on a feeling of love. And when the feeling dies, the marriage is dissolved. I mean, it would be unethical, wouldn't it, to require someone to remain in a loveless marriage? That's unethical. So when you don't feel you're in love anymore, to get divorced. There's another one, two-parent homes, right? Two-parent home consisting of a, of a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman, that is Repressive and unnecessary for the raising of children. There's another one for you. A woman's body. A woman's body is, is hers to use as ever, however she desires. It's her right. I, I mean, if pregnancy results because of her decisions, then, then she alone has the authority to decide whether or not the baby within her womb lives or dies. It's her right. There's another one for you. Humanity. Humanity is either the, the, either the product of time and chance or it's, it's the sharer of the ancient life force that inhabits all of creation. 
It's either secular humanism or it's neo-paganism. It's either time and chance or, or we all share in the ancient life force. Either way, humans, animals, and plants are of equal value and deserve equal and universal rights. It's the ethics of our world. Oh, how about this one? The scientific ability to do something provides the moral justification to do it. The scientific ability provides the moral justification. If we can, we should, we must. What is the consequence? It's this. Medical procedures are bounded now only by technology. That's the reigning ethic. What are the boundaries on medical procedures? Can we do it? That's our ethical boundary. Here's one more for you. Feelings of nationalism or religious affiliation are the cause of the world's conflicts. Therefore, what we need is an international body of enlightened bureaucrats who can establish planetary laws and then enforce them for the benefit of mankind. That's the world's ethic. So, here you go. All you have to do is accept these ethical positions and you can assure yourself a peaceful life. Just buy in. The sad thing is, my friends, the church has bought in. The church has bought in. Appropriate the world's standards, approve the world's righteousness, accept the world's ethics, fourth and finally, acquiesce to the world's gods. Acquiesce to the world's gods. This one's easy. Just keep quiet about the gospel. Simple. Just keep your mouth shut. Pretend that all religions basically teach the same thing, right? Many ways to God. You got your religion, I got my religion, end of the conversation. Whatever you do, do not do what the early Christians did, which insisted, they insisted upon the statement that Jesus is Lord. Do not do that. When you do that, you will put yourself on a collision course. If you insist upon the necessity and the priority of the Lordship of the Jesus Christ, that is an exceedingly bad taste. It's bad taste socially, it, it offends people, and it draws out their wrath. So there you have it. It's very simple. Okay? You want to avoid persecution? Just live like that. Designate, evaluate, cultivate, cultivate. Listen, you know I was being sarcastic, wasn't I? So it gets hard. I mean, if persecution is part of what it means to follow Christ, then that means we, 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 our lives put us on this path. There's a collision coming. If you, if you haven't had one yet, it's coming. It's coming. And, and as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we can't run from it. Now, we shouldn't be seeking it. We don't have to go out of our way in order to have people hate us. 
But you don't have to. See, all you have to do is live for Christ. And everything else sort of takes care of itself. So how do we, how do we cultivate a life for Christ that will inevitably cause collision? I'm going to go through it quickly here. I've got eight things really quick. Bing, bing, bing. They'll be on the screen. Okay? Or if you'd like... If you email the church office, they will put you on a sermon note distribution list. You can have exactly the same thing I take into the pulpit every week. Delivered to your email box. How's that? Just promise me you, if you're going to reuse it somewhere else, that you don't change it. Okay? Other than that, you can have it. So here they are, eight of them, really quick. Number one, do not participate in work conversations that revolve around crude humor, weekend parties, or office gossip. Now, I didn't mention sports, because if I had mentioned that, you'd have had nothing to talk about. But, <laughs> but this, is, this is, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? This is what the conversations revolve around. Crude humor. Weekend parties and office gossip. So refrain, refuse, do not participate, turn on your heels and walk away. You have to say anything, just don't participate. Your silence will be deafening. Second, be scrupulously honest in your business and personal dealings. Refuse to cut corners or fudge the truth. scrupulously honest, you will stand out. Three, regularly and deeply wash your mind with the Scriptures, which will change how you see and value this world and the next. Right? There's, a, there's an investment strategy going on here. Jesus says that persecution in this life is more than made up for in the reward that comes in the life to come. That's an investment strategy. The only way we can, can understand that kind of math is when we wash our heart and mind in the Word of God. Four, insist that only the triune God of Scripture is real and that all the others are fakes. The only God is the true God, and the true God is a triune God. All other pretenders are fakes. Five, call sin, sin, in both your own life and in other people's lives, and then, and then warn of the consequences of those who die in their sins. We're really good about redefining sin with all these lesser words. I was talking about this with somebody the other day. We don't say that we got angry, which is a biblical term. We say we got irritated. Okay? No, you didn't get irritated. You got angry. You got angry. Call sin, sin. Six, insist that there is only one way to be saved from our sins, and that is through faith in the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to do it. All right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's a party killer. Okay? That just really does it. Seven, raise your children to know and embrace this truth. 
you will have family members guaranteed that will be unhappy with you. Eight, order your priorities, that is your finances, your time commitments, your educational and your vocational pursuits to reflect your belief that life is fleeting and that the kingdom of God is real and could come at any moment. That will make you stand out in the world. Order your priorities. Have the gospel change the way you value, the way you, the way you account in this life. It will change. Simple. But hard. Requires dependence upon the Spirit of God, doesn't it? Requires dependence on the Spirit of God. We begin to think differently. We exercise our faith. Not just in a vague, general way, right? But in a real nuts and bolts, Monday morning kind of way. When you walk into the office or you, you show up at, at school and there before work starts or class starts, there's a few people standing around and, and there you know what they're talking about. And you don't join in and you have to stand all by yourself. It's hard. It's hard. Listen, Jesus said that persecution, insults, and slander go hand in hand with what it means to be a disciple. So let's ask this question, right? Here's the question. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing? You're a follower of Christ. By faith in the resurrected Lord, right? God has saved you. Not on the basis of what you have done, but what he has done in Christ. Call out to him. Call out to him to, to help us, to help you, to live for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a weak people. We are people who are self-indulged. We are people who are soft. We are people who can sing about the battle, and yet we find it so hard to engage. Oh Lord, we are so dependent upon your grace day to day to live the Christian life. Father, we, we just call on you right now to help us. Every one of us, we have an area in our lives that, that comes readily to our mind. It's probably been flowing through our minds in the last hour in which we know we need your grace. May you help us. May you help us, O oh Lord. Now, Father, I can't also help but think of the persecuted church around the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering even now. Sometimes unspeakable horrors, but 
But Lord, if not that, then certainly the insults and the slanders. Oh Lord, may You strengthen them. May You help them to to remember the Gospel. To do the math. And to be willing to follow You in this life that they might live with You in the next. Now to Him who is able to keep You from stumbling and to make You stand in the presence of His glory blameless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.